the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, March 25th, 1965. I'm Sally Helm. Inside Angel Hall on the University of Michigan campus, the auditoriums are full. Professors in ties are sitting on chairs in front of a half-erased blackboard. People are throwing around terms like imperialism and domino theory. Some of the students take a coffee break at 3 to keep their energy up. That's 3 a.m. It is not a bright Ann Arbor spring day out the windows of Angel Hall. It's the middle of the night. Some of the students here wouldn't normally be allowed to gallivant around at 3 a.m. In this era, female students at the University of Michigan have a curfew. But the university has made a special exception. And more than 2,000 students of all genders have gathered for a first-of-its-kind protest, something called a teach-in. Talks and lectures and movies about one of the biggest issues facing the country, the Vietnam War. A lot of students are hearing things they didn't know. One later admits to the student newspaper, I'd never really thought very much about this. But after tonight, I think we should get out of Vietnam. For many students, this was a revelation. Raising awareness was really important. It was like Paul Revere, you know. Hey, look at this. We thought that American policy could be changed if knowledge could be mobilized. Despite bomb threats and sleepiness and one mandatory evacuation, the teach-in goes on all night. And it won't be the last. In fact, it'll help kick off the entire anti-war movement on campuses across the country. Today, a time capsule of that first teach-in. Stories from the students and professors who made it happen. Why did they decide that this was the way to protest the Vietnam War? And what impact did the teaching have in shaping the anti-war movement on college campuses? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Like any other college campus, the University of Michigan has its own shorthand. The main crossroads of campus with a large open space in the middle is called the Diag. On that Diag is a bronze letter M, which people call VM, even though there are countless other letter Ms scattered all around campus. There's also this open lobby area at the intersection of three buildings. It's known as the fishbowl. Called the fishbowl because it was floor-to-ceiling windows looking out at the main campus. Michael Zweig is a University of Michigan alum. He began there as an undergrad in 1960 and then started his PhD at the university right after. So he knew his way around the Diag. He'd spent plenty of time in the fishbowl. But when he gets to campus in 1964, he sees something he hasn't noticed there before. 
the U.S. military. The Marines came and had recruiters set up a table in the fishbowl. They're recruiting in part because the U.S. has slowly begun to step up its involvement in Vietnam on a mission to limit the spread of communism. My fellow Americans. President Lyndon Johnson had recently ordered airstrikes against North Vietnam, but he said it was just a retaliatory measure after an alleged attack on American ships. We still seek no wider war. At this point, in the fall of 1964, a lot of people take Johnson at his word. They think the war's not going to escalate. They don't even really think there's a war happening yet. But Michael Zweig is troubled by what's going on in Vietnam. He isn't a communist, he says, but he thinks the Vietnamese should be able to choose their own government. America shouldn't get involved. And he thinks if other people knew more about the conflict, they'd be troubled too. So we decided to bring information to the campus. That we is Zweig and his friend, an undergrad named Stan Nadell. I'm Stan Nadell. Stan and I thought it was very important to get people to understand what was going on there. Most students didn't pay any attention at all to the war. Zweig and Nadell were both involved in the activist group Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. SDS had held its first national meeting at the University of Michigan in 1960. But at the start of the 1964 school year, they weren't yet focused on Vietnam. Few people were. So Zweig and Nadell decide to take their own concerns about the war to the fishbowl, right to the spot where the Marines are recruiting. We decided that we would set up a table right next to their table. We went out and we got four posters and we taped them together into a very big poster. And then we drew a big red arrow. And on the top of that arrow, we wrote, In Vietnam, American soldiers are committing war crimes. Below the arrow, they taped news clippings about what was going on in Vietnam. The response? People who were coming by were largely hostile to us. There was a big uproar and there were people arguing and made a big fuss. You know, that we were un-American and we weren't patriotic, that we didn't support our country. We had to have a defense squad around the table to keep students, right-wingers, from tearing the sign down. We got a lot of grief, but we also got some support and, and interest or curiosity. They fold up their table after a few days maybe having brought this issue to a few new minds. And then, in February of 1965... All hell broke loose when the United States started bombing North Vietnam. Gail Ness is an emeritus professor of sociology at Michigan with a focus on Southeast Asia. So in 1965, that gives him direct experience in a region that the whole country is suddenly looking at. A region most of them know very little about. At that time, most people couldn't find Vietnam on the map. But with Johnson authorizing sustained bombing of North Vietnam, it's becoming clear. The U.S. is going to war. And that is, to any armed attack, our forces will reply. Some of our more liberal or radical faculty and graduate students didn't like that. They're worried the U.S. is trying to control Vietnam in an imperialist way. And they want to do something. We decided, well, at least the tiniest little thing we could do would be to call off our classes. In 1965, Richard Mann is in his first year as a tenured professor of psychology. And after the bombing of North Vietnam, 
he and a small group of faculty decide to make a statement, call off their classes in what they refer to as a work moratorium, essentially a one-day strike. Pretty quickly, faculty start signing on. Man's department chair would stop by his office each day to hear the running tally. He would just drop in. He'd, I'd see him at my door. <laughs> He'd say, hi, how you doing? I, I said, we're up to 39 <laughs> or 62. But then the backlash starts. That's un-American. Fire these guys, even if they have tenure. The university president came down against it. The governor came down against it. That's Jack Rothman, one of the professors who decided to strike. Even some of my colleagues were ignoring me or passing me by. <laughs> there, there was such a lot of disagreement. At Michigan and across the country, the majority of Americans support the war and President Johnson. He had been the university's commencement speaker just months earlier. They assume the government knows what it's doing and that it knows more than a bunch of liberal professors. Some students are even threatening to sue the professors if they strike. A state senator says those professors should be given a one-way transportation ticket to the University of Hanoi in North Vietnam. And the university's president tells them there is a time and place for making protests, but dismissing classes is not an acceptable one. All this makes some of the strikers wonder, should we reassess this whole plan? And I said, maybe so, because nobody was talking about the Vietnam War. Everybody was talking about the fact that faculty have the right to not teach. One night, a group of about eight professors meets up at someone's house to brainstorm. They're trying to figure out whether they should go on with the strike or if there's something else they can do, something that's strong enough to have an impact but not so controversial that it distracts from the point they're trying to make. And eventually, someone proposes... Instead of teaching less, why don't we teach more? Not only will we teach during the day when we were supposed to be on strike, but we will teach all night. Till 8 o'clock the next morning. Well, that seemed to strike a bell. They come up with a name, a teach-in. It's a take on the sit-in strategy that civil rights protesters have been using for years. All that's left to do is convince the die-hard strikers to sign on to this new plan. So they call another meeting. In a sign of what's to come, the discussion starts around 8 p.m. and continues until around 4.30 in the morning. It was one of the most exciting meetings I've ever been at. There's a lot of debate. 11 p.m., no resolution. Midnight, still stuck. But eventually, they reach a consensus. They're going to try this teaching idea. They bring the idea to the university, and the dean loves it. They said, oh, you can have the rooms free. You know, we'll give you electrical people and so forth. They couldn't give us enough. Just don't have the strike. <laughs> this late strategy pivot means the teaching planners are in crunch mode. They want to do this thing on March 24th, which is just a few weeks away. And it's going to take a lot of planning. What we did is handle some of the logistics, publicity. Howard Wachtell is a graduate student. He helps make this all happen. So do the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS. 
including those tabling protesters, Stan Nadell and Michael Zweig. They have the expertise these professors need. How to get out press releases, how to do mimeograph leaflets. How was the program going to be distributed? Where was it going to be? All the very, you know, sort of basics that we knew how to do as student activists. The professors start recruiting speakers for the event. They said, I can call this person up and call that person up. I recall being just mesmerized about all the people they knew, whom I only knew by authors of books. Turns out, some of those authors are willing to speak about the war and why they think it's a bad idea. The teach-in has a point of view. It's an educational event that is also an anti-war protest. The administration and virtually the entire national press in the United States at that point were all backing the war. And so the only speakers there were, the only topics there were, were counter to the war. Not, should we have the war or should we not have the war? <laughs> that was decided. We should not have the war. <laughs> At least, it's decided in the minds of these professors and students. But a lot of other students on campus haven't decided what to think. And on the night of March 24th, they show up at the fishbowl. Not everyone was there by any means was necessarily a supporter of our position against the war, but they were there to learn. For Stan Nadell, this is very different from the experience he had tabling next to the Marines at the beginning of the year. And for his friend Michael Zweig. I remember standing on a table, you know, starting around 7 o'clock at night, and just directing people and shouting with a megaphone, uh, go over here and uh, registration is over there. Watching these people streaming in and streaming in, it was really quite a moving experience that we had really done something here. The night begins with lectures on things like the history of the French colonization of Vietnam. For many of the students, I think it would a lot of new material. There are screenings of films made by South Vietnamese filmmakers, panel discussions about alternatives to military action, breakout groups to analyze government documents justifying the war. I never heard of Laos or Cambodia. Just because we were against the war didn't mean we understood very much. We understood enough that we needed to oppose it, but we needed to get straight what was it all about, what should we know, what about history should we learn. There's also less academic stuff like folk singing, and as the program put it, other activities for those who don't want to talk all night. Some students get a game of bridge going. It was teaching turned upside down. Susan Harding was a freshman at the time. She said, the teach-in felt so lively and so unlike a typical classroom experience. Sometimes interruptions, definitely debates. People were arguing with each other on the stage. Sometimes people were calling out from the audience. It was very heated, very contentious, not only in the level and emotion of the debate, but the fact that we were questioning authority. There are also people outside questioning this event. Counter-protesters carrying signs in support of President Johnson and the war. Peace through strength, better dead than red. And soon... Somebody called in a bomb threat. The police rush into the room and tell everyone, you have to evacuate. Into the cold Michigan winter. 
some of the counter-protesters outside start throwing snowballs, trying to break up the crowd. Meanwhile, police are inside the building, searching for a bomb. And the speakers just keep talking. There's a rally at midnight on the Diag. One of the speakers is Alan Haber, who was one of the founding presidents of SDS. He didn't write a speech. He just started talking. So what was in my heart that this war should never be happening. The United States should be uh, looking at how to recognize the rights of the Vietnamese people to choose their own government, our basic line. <laughs> Finally, they get the word. No bombs after all. The coast is clear. Everyone piles back in for late-night seminars, some 3 a.m. coffee. Some of the counter-protesters even come in at one point and join the debate. This goes on until the sun comes up. And then it was morning and we were tired. Bleary-eyed students and teachers return to their normal classes. But by the next day, the media is all over the story. Between two and 3,000 students of the faculty and the student body at the University of Michigan spent all night protesting the American policy in Vietnam. You engage in a lot of meetings, activities, demonstrations. Most of them uh, have limited significance, but this exploded. It seems to strike a chord. Some of the organizers are interviewed for a segment on the Detroit News. One is Bill Gampson, a sociology professor who helped lead the teach-in. This is his widow, Zelda, also a sociologist and activist. In an interview with a reporter outdoors in the dark, you can see Bill's a little bit uncomfortable. Do you have any specific alternatives? Are you at this point in favor of pulling out? Uh, well, no, I don't think there may be members of the group who would feel that way. He's not polished. He's not been trained in... PR. He's a professor. But it gave Bill an opening to say, well, I think this is part of my job. We feel that this action is our way of meeting our responsibilities to the students, to the university, and to the larger community. The teaching organizers didn't want this to be a one-off event. They thought this new way of protesting fit their role as professors, and that it could work on other campuses, too. A lot of us just sort of got busy and started calling our colleagues in other places. You know, hi, Fred. It's me. How are you doing? You know what we're doing? We would like you to do it, too. And the person would say, well, let me speak to my colleague here and we'll see what happens. Two days after the Ann Arbor teach-in, Columbia University holds its own. Within a week, so do 34 other universities. And so then the teach-in movement really began. While other campuses follow their lead, the Michigan organizers are planning their next move. Sure, they got 3,000 people to show up and listen, but on their campus of almost 30,000 students, anti-war activism is still far from mainstream. Plus, they want to channel this energy beyond the bounds of college campuses. As they're batting around ideas, they think, what if we go bigger, do a national teach-in, and go up against someone in the Johnson administration? What we should do is challenge Bundy, Johnson's right-hand man, to a debate. McGeorge Bundy was Johnson's national security advisor. And then there was a moaning, oh my God, he'll never, he'll just throw it in the wastebasket. He'll just, you know, just laugh at us. And I said, well, I said, okay, I can, I'll write the letter, you know, he was my dean. 
Bundy came from the world of universities. He'd been a dean at Harvard. And Richard Mann had been a young Harvard professor. So he writes this letter on behalf of a group of Michigan faculty. And a couple days later... I was out in the garden and my wife came out to the steps and said, the White House is on the phone. (laughs) It's a nice moment in your life, you know, the White House is on the phone. Bundy says, okay, I'll do it. With Bundy on the program, lots of professors beyond the University of Michigan sign up to get involved. And on May 15th, everything is ready. There's an audience of 5,000 at the Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington, D.C., plus more watching and listening in from afar. We were connected by telephone with 121 different colleges and auditoriums and venues around the country. More than 100 campuses, more than 100,000 audience members in all. It's that night in Angel Hall, now extended outwards across the nation and happening in daylight. But when the time comes for Bundy himself to speak, He's a no-show. Apparently, he's been called off on important business to the Dominican Republic. One University of Washington professor says Bundy has turned in a terrible record on attendance. Bundy later writes to Mann, apologizing for his absence. The point is, he says, to make it clear to ourselves and to others that we believe in the processes of discussion. And soon, he agrees to another debate. The New York Times reports... McGeorge Bundy, the teach-in dropout of the month, said today that he was available to prominent scholars for a makeup examination on Vietnam. That debate airs on CBS as a special hour-long program called Vietnam Dialogue, Mr. Bundy and the Professors. It's the first time a high-ranking member of the Johnson administration has openly debated about the war in public. And the anti-war organizers think it goes great. Our view at the end of it was, oh, we just wiped the floor with them. But not everyone sees it that way. A New York Times critic says Bundy proved a sharp and effective adversary who seemed to relish the academic confrontation. But in some ways, no matter who won, the teach-in is doing what it was meant to do, talking about ideas directly, publicly, in a really complex way. But all the talking doesn't seem to be changing the actual course of the war when nothing changed. In fact, the escalation got larger and larger. The strategy changed from rational argument to mass mobilization. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. By the following school year, the anti-war movement is changing. Of course, the teach-in movement has spread, but also student activists have led a protest march on Washington. At that point, it was the largest peace protest in U.S. history. And the tactics begin to turn away from talk and towards action. At the University of Michigan, a lot of rallies, like every month, had 33,000 in the Michigan Stadium one time. We had demonstrations. People went out on the main highway, US 23, and just lay down on the, on the street. In the fall of 1966, those demonstrations center on a new issue that is tied really closely to campuses. The draft. Before, students could get a deferral from military service. But the war has grown. When the army uh, needed more bodies, they changed the rules. They were going to start drafting students who weren't good students. Now, only male students in the top 50% of their class, or those who score highly on a special exam, could get a deferral. The bottom 50% were subject to the draft. And that just seemed too hard. I'm sitting and taking an exam next to somebody. Which one of us goes to Vietnam? Whether or not we gave a student a B or a C it could determine for male students whether or not they would live or die. And that was a heavy, heavy burden and responsibility. It was up to the university to hand over the class rankings to the government. And many Michigan students and professors say to them, just don't do it. We had mass marches, we had sit-ins, then we also went to the president and to the provost and to everybody we could. The university's response? Well, they said, uh, go away. We have an obligation to do what the government says. And that's that. But instructors have another idea. What if we just don't give out grades at all? And as in the early days of the cancel classes idea, dozens of instructors sign on. And as before, the administration plays hardball. And they said, well, you have to. You know, if you don't turn in grades, then you're not fulfilling your responsibilities and we're going to fire you. And, the university says, will punish your students, too. Every student who didn't get a grade would fail. And that would then drive them into the lower part of the ranking. And uh, our action would make our students more eligible for the draft. So the last holdouts give in, and the protest falls apart. In the months and years that follow, the war only continues to escalate. But so do campus protests, telling the government to get out of Vietnam and telling universities not to be complicit in the war. Historian Ellen Schrecker, who just wrote a book about universities in the 1960s, told us that the teach-ins both jump-started and set the agenda for the entire anti-war movement that followed. Armed with the knowledge of Vietnam's history and the U.S.'s military actions, students and professors turned to new modes of resistance. For some, that's more radical action. For others, like Professor Richard Mann, that's countercultural identity. We smoked a lot of dough. You know, faculty all together, we listened to Pink Floyd. Or, <laughs> that was a kind of counterculture thing. Something had to unscramble the, the rage and fury and, you know, sort of helplessness. Helplessness. Because despite changing public opinion, getting people talking and thinking critically about the war, the teach-ins and the marches and the protests they spawned just did not end the war. 
That's how things work. I'm sorry to say it took the North Vietnamese themselves to win the war. The teaching didn't end it. But it was, it was a good thing. It affected public opinion in a positive way, in a good way. And, of course, it affected the people who were there, who made it happen. Like Zelda Gampson and her husband Bill, one of the Teachin's main organizers. I think Bill, if you asked him what was his biggest accomplishment as an academic, he would say founding the first Teachin. Zelda Gampson was at the Teachin, and she says there's no forgetting that feeling of history being made right in front of you. And there's no breaking the connections you make, building a movement like that. The experience of doing something with a purpose that you believe in. And that event leads to things that you couldn't have predicted exactly, but a sense of success, of accomplishment, of making a difference. That's really important, the, the emotional side of this. If you feel there's an injustice and you have people who agree with you, sit down and talk together and plan what you can do about that collectively. I'm speaking to young people who think, oh, you know, that's so boring or or it's too hard or whatever, that you can really have a good time. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And if you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guests here in alphabetical order, Zelda Gamson, Alan Haber, Susan Harding, Richard Mann, Stan Nadell, Gail Ness, Jack Rothman, Howard Wachtel, and Michael Zweig. Thanks also to Ellen Schrecker, author of The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s, and to Greg Kinney at the Bentley Historical Library at the University of Michigan. This episode was reported and produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by Jennifer Gorin and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.